I make mistakes every day. Some I'm not even aware of, while others I wish never happened. What if baseball adopted this same mindset? What if the box score pretended that errors never happened? Let's talk about it. Play ball! Ladies and gentlemen, introducing the Ball and Mitt Podcast, a willy-nilly talk show about baseball, life, and the occasional knee slapper. So grab your cracker jacks, sit back, and relax. It's gonna be a doozy. Here's your host, the bee's knees himself, Hey, baseball fans. I am your host, Brian Brammer, and this is the Ball Mitt Podcast, Episode 3. Oh, that elusive error. And why is it elusive? Because every player's made one. I mean, I'm sure there's some of you out there that think, I've never committed one. It was a bad hop, or the sun was directly in my eyes. I wasn't ready. That cute girl winked at me. Whatever, dude. Errors are such a fascinating part of the game. Was the play routine? What constitutes a routine play? Do you set the standard for an error lower due to a player's skill? Are you playing at home or away? What mood is the scorer in? Did they get in a fight with their spouse that morning? Did he spill coffee on his shirt while driving to the stadium? It's elusive because we are always talking about it in some sort of fashion. But what if we eliminated the scoring of an error altogether? Foul, you say? Pun intended. Who would even suggest such a foolish notion? Brian Kenny of MLB Now. Now, he's got this show called Hit or Air. It's a fun little show, uh, seeing grown men argue about whether a play involved a hit or an error. Um, <laughs> it's actually not much of an argument. Why? Well, can it, it kind of goes like this. Here's, here's a snapshot or preview of the episode. Highlight rolls. Brian Kenny asks a co-host, hey, hit or air. The co-host tries to set the context. Brian Kenny interrupts him and says, hey, no, hit or air. Co-host can't give uh, an answer because it's actually not that simple. So they just cave. So Brian Kenny stops talking. Brian Kenny shuts them down and says, and this is why it's nonsense. Rinse and repeat. He's even started this hashtag campaign, kill the air. So what I want to do is take a look at some quotes that Brian Kenny mentioned in his show, Digging In, and dissect them just for a bit. Before I do that, I have this disclaimer. I'm not arguing for or against sabermetrics at this time. I do have an opinion, but I want to keep the main thing the main thing. So I don't want to steer um, you away from the point that I'm trying to make. Okay? All right, I have about six or seven quotes that I want to kind of give a commentary on. Number one, by 1950, this is a quote from Kenny, by 1950, errors had ceased to be a significant part of baseball. Now, just because they didn't happen as much or don't occur that often doesn't make this less significant part of the game. I'd actually be interested in learning why the errors decreased so much. By the end of the 19th century, there was approximately five errors per game, give or take. Was that due to a lack of equipment or the lack thereof? How about just skill level in general? That's a hard one to judge. Possibly, it could be due to the precision of scorekeeping as the game progressed. Was the error flippantly used more during that time, or do players get more credit or the benefit of the doubt in this modern-day offensive-driven league? In 1874, Henry Chadwick, he's the father of scoring, proposed this. 
it is about time that one system of scoring should be adapted throughout the country. Well, obviously this didn't happen. So were the errors concerning errors during that era, therefore we now err on the side of caution? (laughs) I had to. As I was writing that down in my show notes, I was like, this is perfect. I have to keep it in here. Okay, anyway. So I just, I don't think that if something ceases or doesn't happen as much, it, it then becomes less significant. For, for instance, uh, real life stories here. I grew up with a very, very bad temper. It was either get mad or cry. And guys don't cry, so I got mad. And it's only just recently, I'd say in the past five or so years, that I've really learned to hone that in to just chill, learn some self-control, and understand that not everybody has to know how I'm feeling all the time. I don't always have to get stuff off my chest. I can deal with it internally. But since that happens less frequently now, does it mean that if I suddenly blow my top, that it's not significant anymore? Oh no, it's very significant. So I don't know if that helps much um, for this point, but I just... I just don't think because of its decline, it therefore isn't significant anymore, so we get rid of it. I just felt that was a little weak. Okay, number two. Um, He actually quotes someone like myself who takes an opposing position and then answers it. So this is how it goes. You can't kill the air. Airs are a big part of the game. That's, That's what I'm shouting. And then he responds, no, they're not. The line between hit or air is so blurred We're just making it up as we go along. Now, I don't really have much evidence to counter this. I think it's more of just an opinion. But I honestly do not think the line is as blurred as he says it is. Difficult difficult at times, yes. But so blurred that we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater? No. And I have never seen people argue so vehemently. I'm channeling my Stephen A. Smith by looking that word up right before an argument. We, we argue so vehemently over something they are just making up. No one does that. Just because something may take some reviewing or back and forth discussion doesn't mean the line is blurred. As I mentioned earlier, in a lot of Brian Kenny's episodes are of hit or air, he asks for the panel's answer immediately. He wouldn't even allow them time to explain the context. Just because it's not simple or easy doesn't mean it isn't worthwhile. We're not just making this up as we go along. Quote three. This is in regard to the near no-hitter of Tyson Ross earlier this year. It was broken up and it was a hit in deep center field and fancy, Francie, <laughs> I get that name missed up all the time. Uh, Cadero, we'll just, we'll just say that. He missed it. So this is his quote. He says, Except Cordero, Padre's center fielder, took a very bad route. The catch probability on this play was 99%. So Kenny, he agreed that this hit that broke up Ross's no-hit bid was correctly ruled a hit. But referencing the catch probability tells us that this was a routine play that should have been caught. And if a routine play is not made, an error should be the result. I get this. I'm tracking with him. But as we know, mental mistakes can't be errors. It's impossible to prove something that could have happened. It's a theory at best. I'll come back to this later on. It 
it ties into something else that I want to propose on the second half of the show. So the catch probability, just because it's 99%, if you, if you look with your eyes at that hit, that's a hit. Regardless of the route that he took. Because it's just a probability. All right, number four. He says, they're all hits. The hitter put it in play. He reached first. They're all hits. Do you know how many times I hit the ball directly into the ground with the most inept swing known to man, but I still reach base because the Baltimore chop exists? Man, with that batting average, uh, scouts messed me over. I mean, do I even need to touch this one? If the hitter put it in play, he reached first, it's a hit. I'm not done. Number five. At the major league level, the amount of truly botched easy plays, because they happen, is significant when compared to a fielder's range. Okay? So truly botched easy plays. Do you mean errors? You do? Okay. I just want to make sure we're on the the same play. Just because you don't call it an error doesn't mean it isn't one. But you can't call them botched plays anymore. It's a hit. If you get rid of the error, that's a hit. Okay, for example, a player gets four at-bats in one game. A double, two singles on botched easy plays, and a walk. Therefore, he is three for three. He's batting a 1,000. Because he put it in play and reached base regardless of how. No. That's, that's nonsensical. Now, regarding fielder's range, that's a very interesting approach. I don't understand why this is a factor. If a player cannot range to his left or right or backwards or forwards, if he doesn't have good range, if it's not as good as you know other players, okay, then the play on the ball was never possible. If he can't get to the ball, a play on the ball never happened. So it's a hit. Pretty cut and dry. If a player's range is above average, then you have a great player. If a ball was hit in the same spot to both players on a consistent basis, one will make the play while the other won't. That's simple. And on the chance that the player with the better range does not make the put out, it doesn't mean it's an error. He just didn't make his typical great play. See, you have to understand this. Great players make most plays look routine. And it very well may be routine for the player. But it doesn't mean the play becomes routine. You can't punish the batter by taking a good hit away, and you can't punish the fielder for not making a difficult play based on his skill. Maybe I'm not seeing the correlation, but ability, so the range in this case, doesn't determine if a play is difficult or not. Ability is a gauge in determining how often a player will make the difficult play. So in my opinion, a difficult play, there's no variables. It is what it is. It's just your really good players make that difficult play often and they make it look routine. Your average player doesn't have as many putouts for the same play. So they either get a hit or they get out. The error isn't even a factor in this. It doesn't even come up in the conversation. So I didn't understand that correlation. Now, again, just because I don't understand it doesn't mean there isn't a correlation. 
I'm giving commentary on these things. I'm not trying to directly oppose them. I think um, I'm doing that. Like I'm attempting to do that, but sometimes it's just going to be commentary. I don't know everything. I'm just starting the conversation and wanting to hear y'all's opinion. But before we continue, let's pause for this episode's Knuckleball Trivia. All right, welcome to this week's Knuckleball Trivia. Time where I ask you a question or a riddle, and you have until Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern to tweet it to me or figure it out on your own because that's when I'm going to reveal the answer. All right, this is just for fun. Maybe eventually I'll incorporate this uh, into some giveaways, but um, for right now, bragging rights. In 1954, Mel Allen, broadcaster for the New York Yankees and first host of This Week in Baseball, he advocated for a change in a baseball game's box score. He noticed that the error was placed upon players like a badge of shame. It was prominent. It was right up there with runs and hits. It was there for everyone to see and remember. However, he also noticed the amount of great defensive plays that went unnoticed. Unfortunately, this new scoring system went nowhere. It's, it is as it is today. So, with that context, here's your question. What is the term that Mel Allen used to describe these defensive plays. Okay, number six. In the context of contact being a very valuable skill, this is what he says, strikeout rates have increased dramatically over the years. That's significant. A player that makes contact should be rewarded. If you put the ball in play and reach first, it's a hit. But here's the thing with stats. You can make them say anything. Stats are not self-interpreting. He is assuming that there's a direct correspondence between striking out and a batter's inability to make contact. It's not inability. It's unwillingness. Are the strikeouts occurring because fewer professionals have the inability to make contact? Or are fewer players unwilling to make contact because they want to be on the highlight reel? Or increase their trade value? Get their agents more money? See, The same advocates for velocity rate and launch angle for home runs are using the increased rate of strikeouts to prove their point regarding a different metric. The metric being the the issue of the error, the one we're talking about. It's stacking the deck. It's kind of like this. This is a conversation that goes on in the back room, behind the carpet, the carpet, behind the curtain, if you will. This is what's going on. Let's focus on these metrics that allow for more home runs and extra base hits. As a result, there will be more strikeouts. But rather than admit that, let's use the increase in strikeouts to prove a different narrative. The narrative that making contact is one of the highest skills. If we can demonstrate that, then players should be rewarded for just putting the ball in play and then errors no longer matter. Now, I am not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not. I have friends who are, but I'm not. So that's not a conversation that occurs. But I just wanted to demonstrate the all the different things that are going on in the sport of baseball right now. All these stats getting slung around. Slinged? Slinged around? Either way, slung or slinged. And everybody's got a point to prove. Stats say whatever you want them to say. I've mentioned that. And that the increase in strikeouts does not mean that making contact is any more valuable than it's been. It's a valuable skill. I I agree with that. 
which is why when a player isn't making contact, he is sent down to the minors or benched. But it's because he's not doing his job, not because he lacks a skill. Having a skill and using a skill are two very different things. They're not the same. Having a skill gets you to the big leagues. Not using the skill gets you set down or fired. It's the same anywhere else. I do not get rewarded for doing my job. I just get to do everyone else's job. I'm sure a lot of you can relate. In many cases, players have a hard time making contact throughout their career. And do you know why we don't hear about them? Because they never made it to the highest level. They don't possess the necessary skills to perform the duties. So no, a player should not get rewarded for making contact. That's just silly. And number seven, errors are a 19th century anachronism, old-fashioned. And at this point in baseball, a very subjective call no longer worth making. Subjectivism exists in all sports. We can all agree to that. Just look at the NBA playoffs and their officiating. But you can't just get rid of everything related to the subjectivism. Don't get me started on this whole automatic strike zone poppycock either. That's for another episode. We don't need to throw subjectivism out, just like you don't throw your kids out of the house or get rid of your friends for making dumb decisions or saying hurtful things. I mean, enough is enough, and at some point, but just just go with me on this. I don't think we need to rewrite rules because it can be difficult at times. I suggest a reform before a revolution. I would like to propose a solution based on something that eggheads of baseball already have. They're already keeping these, these stats, I'm going to tell you. Mark Simon analyst with Sports Info Solutions, wrote an article in The Athletic. It's a new digital sports subscription service. It's really good. In it, he talks about Sports Info Solutions' supplemental scoring system. This system allows us to provide description, credit, or demerit for every type of play. They've been tracking this, uh, they call them defensive misplays since 2004. All right, and this is what Mark has to say. I'm going to quote him in full here. Our scorekeepers are known as video scouts, and they've been thoroughly trained on the scoring and charting rules and criteria. There are countless examples to watch of every type of play, and complicated plays are discussed among multiple people before a decision is reached. The defensive misplay is what it sounds like. It's an action or inaction by a fielder that results in a negative consequence, a batter reaching or a base runner advancing. We have approximately 60 types of defensive misplays which includes slipping, turning the wrong way, failure to anticipate the wall, and waste throw. Some teams use these for instructional purposes. We incorporate them into our defensive runs saved metric so that classifications are important. Our purposes are explanation and education. End quote. Now, there are three ways to look at this information. One, Allow it to prove that because baseball plays contain lots of gray areas and are very subjective, the error should be eliminated. Or number two, come to the conclusion that misplays are just a part of the game and they really don't expand or further inform the baseball narrative in regards to players' performance. Or number three, make use of this info and incorporate it into a metric that's useful for players and fans. Not just for statistical nerds and educational sessions. It's, it's helpful for the players, even managers, and the fans watching the game. Let me give you an example. I work in a field in which psychometrics is used. Now, I don't claim to know how they work. I'm just responsible for explaining uh, what some of it means to our clients. We perform a service 
that provides the end user with quantitative data. Sometimes these measures need further context to help interpret that data. As I mentioned, stats, even facts, are not self-interpreting. So it does come down to interpretation. So we have prefixes that we can attach to measures, that's what we call them, that pulls the data tighter together, an explanation, if you will. So why can't we do the same with the misplays? Calculate the batting average of hits with and without misplayed prefixes. Put, put them together, the, the normal batting average and then the misplayed batting average. I don't know what the calibrations would be, but just put them together to create a better profile of what is occurring on the field. This way, the batter still gets a hit, the fielder doesn't receive an error, and we have more info on what type of hit it was. At the major league level, anyone could put the ball in play and reach base. That's what they're hired to do. So getting rid of the error, why do I say no? Well, mainly because I haven't seen any evidence that we should. Advocates of getting rid of the error, they, have, they possess the burden of proof. It's their job to convince us, to convince me, that this should be done. In my opinion, they have not. Their interpretation of the same data I am looking at is not satisfactory. All right, confession. I lied about discussing sabermetrics. I don't want to say that they're nonsense. I, I, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be all or nothing. They have their merit. I really like wins above replacement. I think it's a very valuable sabermetric. But don't just replace it to a statistic that has meant something to the sport just because you think it's better. And I'm not going to mention it all. We've always done it this way because you guys will shred me to pieces. I don't think that's a good argument either, but we've had it for so long because we felt it's valuable. So don't just replace it with something else. I don't know of any R&D community, research and development, that would deny more statistics and information. But sabermetrics seems to live in a vacuum. It looks at how any particular player would perform in an ideal setting. They are based on the individual in a controlled environment, but the game of baseball has many variables. Variables that can't be controlled. That's, I guess, the definition of a variable. (laughs) Can't control it. It always differentiates and changes. Players play on a team. They need a team. The sport needs teams. So a player's value is attached to situations outside of their control. It can't just be about the player. There are other influences that affect the way he plays the game. So all I'm saying is let's look at reforming the data we already possess and repurpose it rather than replacing it with something that appears to be not as difficult. I don't know. Maybe in your opinion, that's what Sabermetrics is doing. I, for one, I'm not convinced. I'm not. I do want to say that one point, Brian Kenny, he stated, I didn't, there's nothing for me to say about this. I'm surprised he said it. He states, reaching on error more often is kind of an earned thing. If we live in a world where reaching on an error is earned, we've got, we've got bigger problems. I've always preferred reformation or refinement over replacement, mainly because it was always offered to me growing up. I wasn't a terrible kid, okay? I just made boneheaded decisions that I was fully aware of. It's not like I was ignorant to them. I just crossed my fingers and hoped it all turned out well. Never did. But I was always given the opportunity to become better, to be used in different ways and and for different reasons. I'm a screw-up, but not everyone sees me that way. And I'm grateful for that. All right, enough of this mushy stuff. Let's wrap it up. 
All right, welcome to Three Strikes. This is the part of the show where I attempt to give you some advice that may or may not land you behind bars. Strike one. If you live in the north where it always seems to snow and you need to go buy another box of Cinnamon Toast Crunch, follow Robinson Cano's lead. Grab your jacket and cover up. Strike two. If you like playing hide and seek but were never good at the seeking part, just play with Anthony Rizzo because after his terribly executed hidden ball trick, you can tell he's not good at hiding things. Strike three. These are always related to food. They always will be. Once I downed an entire box of Fruity Pebbles, which included half a gallon of milk. Do I recommend this? Absolutely. That's three strikes, and I'm out. See ya! Well, folks, that's a wrap. This has been a Ball and Bit Podcast production. Take a gander at our website and remember to follow us on Twitter and subscribe to the show. Thank you for tuning in. Farewell, baseball fans!